We welcome you to the official Titans podcast brought to you by Farm Bureau Health Plans. Look to the folks at Farm Bureau Health Plans when you need someone who understands the X's and O's of healthcare coverage. They've been protecting Tennesseans since 1947. And he hasn't been protecting Tennesseans since 1947, but he did it for a long time. In many roles, the last of which the president and CEO of this organization until just days ago, Steve Underwood, your exit interview on the official Titans podcast. We welcome. I'm looking forward to it, Mike. And thanks to our friends at Farm Bureau. It's good stuff. All right. So we, we have done interviews with you in the past and we've talked about so much history. And if people haven't listened to your OTP from 2018, we certainly want to encourage them to do that because the talk of the move and everything that went with it, uh, is fascinating, particularly as we enter sort of the second stage of, of the Titans going into the second generation. But I want to talk about the most recent incarnation of your time with the team and how, how fascinating it is from the standpoint, you retire in 2011, you head back to Texas, you love retirement. Things are going well. Texas is good and life is good and everything's going well. And then in 2015, the phone starts ringing. Did you consider turning it down? And did you think you'd be here five years? I never necessarily considered turning it down. I did go to my wife, Frances, and ask her if she was going to be okay with it. Of course, what I pitched to her, Mike, was what Amy had pitched to me, which was a couple of months. Um, Francis and I had, or I had had a project underway for many years, which was to, uh, buy a brand new Corvette and take delivery of it at the assembly facility in Bowling Green. And we, I had put aside the money. It had taken me many, many years to save the money for the car. And because we still had children at home and still going to college, I had never committed money to buy the car. And Francis said, I'll go along with it, Steve, if you'll go ahead and order your car. Wow. Which I did. Um, And we, she and I picked it up then in July after I had started work in Nashville in March. I actually started, believe it or not, Mike, at the NFL's annual owner meetings, uh, which that year were in uh, Phoenix at the Biltmore. And uh, that's where my first day on the job was. Uh, and of course, I, you know, most all those people I knew and many of them remembered me from other clubs and from the league office and so forth. Then it was several months later, Amy said, hey, we're, we're still going through the transition. Would you mind staying through the end of the season? Uh, that would have been the 2015 regular season. And again, I consulted with Francis and we were OK with it. At, but at all that time, I was trying to help them look for someone to be their permanent. Uh, resident uh, in charge, executive in charge. And from time to time, I would send them lists and resumes and this guy might be good. You might want to interview this guy. And I would never hear anything back from any of them. After several months of that, I mean, I was still sending things, uh, but I think Amy sort of cut off or foreclosed further discussion of it by saying, well, could, could you stay through the end of the season? So we put all that on hold. 
the search for someone permanent uh, and kept working on the projects that we were trying to address. Now, I want to hit something personally about you before we move forward. I would bet that the thought about a Corvette started when you were a young man coming from, you don't come from royalty, as you've okay. mentioned on many occasions. You come <laughs> no. from most humble beginnings. Right. And many people in this country have, who have come from humble beginnings have a car dream. We are the land of cars, obviously. They were invented here. And so that, that, that sort of factored into the process is that this had been a lifelong dream, correct? Oh, I, well, in high school, I worked at a gas station pumping gas, which is something, of course, people don't do anymore except in the state of New Jersey. But I was pumping gas and making a dollar and a quarter an hour. And there was a guy in town who had a silver Stingray, uh, the fastback model. 1963 and I became just totally enamored of his car uh, and then from that point on every time I would see a Corvette well I was I would get at least a little excited um, and became more and more in love with the car over time and then finally uh, sometime in the mid 80s I started a secret slush fund to buy a Corvette uh, I eventually told Francis about it after I had a few thousand dollars in it. And some weeks I was not able to save anything. Other weeks I would save, you know, a few dollars. So the savings process for the car lasted almost 30 years. And uh, over that time, I built up uh, enough money to, to actually buy the car. But by then, I had two kids at Baylor and, you know, was a little concerned about making sure that we could pay for all that. Um, our son was still living up until 2011. So I had, I had that concern as well. Uh, but all of those things were pretty much taken care of by the time I went back to work and my wife had pity on me and said, well, go ahead and order the car and then I'll be okay with you going. I think it's an important part of the Steve Underwood story though, because where you come from, how you came up with Mr. Adams, how hard you had to work, how you advanced through the organization. And the fact that you would save in that way tells a lot about your story, which is why I wanted to bring it out. And it, it, I think it also tells why she picked up the phone and called you at this point, because when you walked back into St. Thomas Sports Park, it's a mess. <laughs> I mean, let's face it. Um, so let me ask you, at the moment you walked back into the office in the spring of 2015, what were the first things that had to be addressed to get the Titans straight? Of all the concerns that Amy and I had at that moment in time, the biggest one to me was what I would describe uh, as, among our staff, a, a sort of deep abiding concern about the direction the team was going and our future outlook as an NFL club. Mr. Adams had passed away. But people there really never got much of a chance to interact with Tommy and Susie. Tommy became the president immediately after Mr. Adams' death, and Susie was controlling owner. We had a relatively new head coach uh, in Ken Wisenhunt. Now we had a another new owner that no one really knew, uh, an interim president who had just finished being retired for over three years, had 
to try to be uh, constructive about it, had not really had very competitive football teams for a number of years. All those things, I think, weighed on the staff. On top of that, there was an owner who seemed to be inexperienced about what to do about an NFL team. Now, you understand this, Mike, and uh, many of our listeners will understand. NFL teams changing hands sends a very difficult message to your staff uh, because new owners do things like fire everybody in sight and start over again. So I think there, there was this um, sort of overlay among all of the people on the football and business side about, okay, well, wh- what does all this mean for us and for our families? Where are we going and who are these leaders and what do we know about them? To me, the single largest concern was getting our staff on board with uh, what was going to happen and having a program that they could believe in and could trust. Uh, because those are the things that make for successful organizations. But that was the biggest single problem. In resetting this thing and gaining stability, probably the most important factor to me was people getting to know Amy Adams Strunk. And oh, for the league totally. and, and for for everybody, I mean, it seems like that is the real story of her success over five years is that once people got to know her, whether it was other owners whether it was the NFL office, whether it was our fan base, whether it was the staff, it didn't make any difference. Once that was in place, things started to stabilize. Was that the key, people getting to know her? Oh, totally. You know, getting to know her or anyone else for that matter is a process that takes time. It just It's just like restoring the confidence of our staff. We had to work at Amy getting exposure because as you suggest, once people get an opportunity to meet her, see how down to earth and friendly she is, which by the way, and again, without trying to cast aspersions, was those were not necessarily qualities that Mr. Adams had, uh, but his daughter has them uh, richly. So um, getting exposure to the league staff, to league officials, to our own employees, who'd never really had uh, much way to know anything about Amy. My view has always been uh, that Mr. Adams left the impression and with other owners that he suspected his children would sell the team. Uh, And I have reason to believe that that's the impression that he intended to, to leave. But as it turned out, Amy had no intention at all of selling. Uh, Neither did Kenneth uh, and his family for that matter. They wanted to be successful in our business and make a name and a mark for themselves, which is very understandable. And once it became clear uh, to everyone that Amy was not going to sell, by the way, another process that took some time. There were a lot of non-believers about all that. Uh, But once they became convinced, not only that she wasn't selling, but that she was going to do whatever was necessary to be successful in our business on and off the field. As you can see, not only with our business and with our football, but with the draft and with improvements at Nissan Stadium and and all of the other things that have happened to say nothing of our playoff run last year, they became believers in Amy. And that was probably the greatest single thing that happened during that time period, that she 
made the impression on people that it was not time to give up on us. It was time to double down. In her time as owner, she's gone from being an unknown figure almost in oiler history, fairly or unfairly. She was not known by many people to where she now has a position of prominence, not only in this community, but she has an, an amount of respect around the league that most owners don't have. As, as you, and I'm surprised some business school hasn't studied it because it really is quite a case study. Why is she so good at this? What is it about her that allowed her to come from such a different business and step into this and do this so well? There are at least two or three things, in my opinion, Mike. Uh, first of all, Amy has remarkably good instincts about our business. You know, you sit down and interview five executives who have made their own mark in the NFL as player personnel directors or in charge of scouting departments or assistant GM and pick the one person. I'm not saying there weren't other people in that group who couldn't have been a GM because Chris Ballard has done a great job at Indianapolis. But Amy's decision about John was the product, in my opinion, of having great instincts, not necessarily about football, but about people. Uh, she's very good, I think, at reading people, not just John Robinson, but all of us. Um, she's very insightful in that way. I think another gift of Amy's is that she has great and good common sense. She does the right thing for the right reason almost every time. Uh, that doesn't exist <laughs> in every owner that I've ever met. Amy is more a student of people and more uh, trying to get to know and understand them and has the ability, which is not commonplace, Mike, to pick out great people from a crowd. Uh, those are some of the qualities uh, that I so admire in her. It seems like, too, she has something that a lot of you Texans seem to be quite proud of. She has quite a BS meter. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she, she has an excellent beat meter. <laughs> she can identify it from a uh, from a good ways away, and I almost always return to this because it's been such an important part of the five years that I've been back. John's hiring is a great piece of our history and one of Amy's boldest moves as an owner. Uh, we had assembled a great group of candidates. Uh, you know, Martin Mayhew was in that group still. A, an executive with 49ers, uh, Chris Ballard, who is a general manager of great standing in his own right. Uh, and we spent three or four hours with each of the five or six men that we interviewed. Uh, Kenneth was also in the room, I might add. Uh, but when it was over, John, I mean, Amy believed that John was the best choice and her instincts had proven to be Sound, I think, is a is a good word. Uh, so picking someone out of a group like that, uh, that's a quality that's, in my opinion, might pretty rare. Um, and while her dad did from time to time exhibit uh, good instincts, you know, he hired Mike Hollaback when Mike was 74 years old. Um, that was another kind of bold thing, I thought. Uh, Mike had worked kind of, um, behind the scenes and uh, labored in obscurity for all those many years, not to other football executives, 
but it, to the league in general, uh, most most everyone knew Mike was a, a superb football uh, talent evaluator. And but getting to be able to to pass judgment on someone with just three or four hours together with them, and you know, John doesn't really have what I would consider to be. Uh, you use the term BS. Uh, he doesn't really mince a lot of words about. Oh, no. uh, that isn't uh, something that he does. He thinks about what his position is. He tries to gather as much information as he can, and he makes a decision. And he has never uh, tried to lay behind the log with me. <laughs> uh, in our conversations and discussions, they've been very direct and very candid. And those are qualities that great general managers exhibit. You immediately put together a team of people that you worked with on an executive level when you came back at 20, in 2015, and you had what you called strategic imperatives. Yes. What were the strategic imperatives and why were they important for the Titans to establish those, even if they aren't as sexy as trading the first round pick and picking Jack Conklin and things like that? But you you were trying to lay down some things from the business side that would improve things strategically and for the fan base. Yes. Uh, every executive, whether you're with the NFL or ExxonMobil or the flower shop down the street, needs to have a set of super priorities that relate to uh, the future of the business. What do we need to look at or work on uh, to be successful, not just now, but five years from now, 10 years from now? Uh, what we do now and what current problems we're facing, those, those matter, of course. But what we want our business to look like a couple of years from now, 10 years from now, uh, those are things that need to be set out and everyone needs to get on board about. Uh, so one of the things that any leader, a business leader needs to do is make sure that his team understands what is most important to him, and in this case to our owner, because we review those with Amy as well. If you have your senior staff on board and people thinking about and working on and working toward those objectives, you're likely to have a decent chance to, uh, to meet the need when it finally comes. So our strategic objectives were established fairly on and they included uh, our local revenue growth. Uh, we're in a small market. Uh, there are teams that have multiples of our local revenue. Uh, we have to compete with them, uh, both in, on the stadium side, the football side. Uh, there are a lot of, you know, competitive uh, circuit breakers uh, that the league uses to try and ensure uh, equal competition on the field. But you still have to pay everyone. You still have to have the money to, to do that. Another objective that we have worked on very hard is stadium security. I realized from time to time we've irritated some fans about the links we go to to try and uh, make sure there are no weapons in the stadium, but stadium security has been a long-time strategic objective of ours. And when I have been asked about it in other settings, yeah, uh, we do go through a lot of effort about screening, and I realize nobody thinks anything is very likely to happen. And there were also very few people who thought that terrorists were going to fly airplanes into skyscrapers. You know, we want to be able to say about our stadium security, 
we did everything we knew to do and everything the experts told us to do to try and keep everybody safe. And if there's never an issue, great. I, you won't find anyone happier about it than I am. But if there is an issue, I want us to be able to say, hey, we, we, we were given a list of things to do, protocols to follow, objectives to achieve, and we did everything that we could within reason to get that done. Capital spending at Nissan Stadium is another strategic objective of ours, not only because we're spending so much money to try and make the stadium uh, better uh, and more fan-friendly, but also because we have the Metropolitan Government and the Sports Authority to think about. And of course, we have many things waiting in the queue to get done. Uh, and they fit into a number of categories, but it suffices to say, they are something that we have to look at strategically uh, because we, we care what the stadium is going to look like and be like in terms of the fan experience five and 10 years from now. Uh, the physical growth of our facilities is another strategic objective of ours. Uh, as you know, Mike, we have added a net of 80 incremental people since I came back to work five years ago. All those people need a place to work. I mean, they're all working from home at the moment or most of them are, the, uh, but they do have to have a place to be uh, and a workspace. I think that's something that uh, is important to every employee uh, and every staff person. Well, we had to get a new building and it's gonna be a 40,000 square foot building and it's going to take a lot of planning, a lot of effort and a lot of money uh, to get it built and get it furnished and occupied. Those are you know, some of the things that we've worked on. Uh, the 2019 NFL draft in Nashville that we hosted was another strategic objective of ours. It's off the list now, but uh, there'll always be something to try and take its place because you need four, five, six things that everyone is dialed into and working on pretty much all the time at every NFL club. We're not a static enterprise and we have to, to continue improving. When Phil Bredesen wanted to bring pro sports to Nashville, one of the reasons was the infrastructure that it would help to bring to finish off his downtown plan, the arena and the stadium as part of that infrastructure. Obviously, the arena is used for, for many different dates. People may not realize the stadium, Nissan Stadium, last year was used for over 400 different dates, and that's something that has been expanded greatly in the last five years is the non-football use right. of stadium on a regular basis. And that relates to our strategic objective about local revenue. The stadium has been underutilized, in my opinion, for much of its existence. We have two beautiful clubs, one of which overlooks downtown and the, over, the other overlooks the confluence of three interstate highways, maybe not quite as appealing as the river in downtown, but still something people enjoy uh, being part of. And then we have a bunch of other discrete spaces inside the building where you can have smaller meetings. But we also have the parking lots uh, and so many places, you know, people love to go down to the sidelines and stand on the field, kind of do the tour. We also have a growing tour business. All of it's been sidelined at the moment because of COVID-19 but I think all that will be back. And the venue business in Nashville generally is growing, uh, mostly because Nashville is such a great town. Uh, There's so many things to do there on the entertainment side, so many world-class restaurants, attractions, uh, things to do downtown. 
uh, all of which got uh, you know super viewed during the 2019 NFL draft uh, and the events but the events business is yet another reason why we need to continue looking for ways to grow our businesses at the stadium and and utilize what is one of Nashville's greatest public works. This is the OTP presented by Farm Bureau Health Plans. Don't get sacked by the high costs of health care. Make Farm Bureau Health Plans your first line of protection. They've been protecting Tennesseans since 1947. Okay, Steve Underwood, some questions to conclude. What are you most proud of that the organization has accomplished in the last five years? You know, there are lots of accomplishments, Mike, but I almost always go back to this. We're a football organization first. So winning playoff games on the road when you are a huge underdog, that is an enormous accomplishment, particularly when you haven't done well for so long. This past season is the greatest season that we've enjoyed competitively in 15 years or so. Uh, everybody should have their hats off to our head coach, our coaching staff, our general manager and his staff uh, about what that means in terms of the phrase you use, accomplishment. And because we are a football organization, I'm not sure you can have anything bigger than going deep into the playoffs if you're an NFL team. But there have been some other accomplishments that I think are worth mentioning. One of those is four winning seasons in a row. Very few teams accomplish that uh, over and over again. And, and I think it needs to be viewed in the light of where we came from. What were the four, eight, 12 seasons like that before? I think we did have one nine and seven season during uh, Mike Munchak's tenure as head coach, but it was not a playoff uh, season. Another great accomplishment is the 2019 NFL draft that we hosted in Nashville. Um, I still believe that's uh, easily the largest sporting event uh, in the history of uh, Tennessee and left so many positive impressions all over the country, not just about uh, Nashville, but Tennessee in general and our franchise. I thought it was a great thing too for solidifying our relationship with the league that somehow gets a little overlooked in that mix because you have 600,000 people and great TV ratings and everybody having a good time. But the league also saw firsthand what Amy's management means uh, and how committed she is to being a successful owner. So there was another knot tied in that <laughs> somewhere that needs to be mentioned that doesn't get said very often. Uh, I think the designation of Nissan, Nissan Stadium under the Safety Act is another under-the-radar thing that has happened that has benefited uh, our club and our stadium and each and every person that walks into that building. It gives me uh, comfort knowing that home, the Homeland uh, Security Department has looked at that building and said, you guys are doing everything correctly. Uh, we're pleased about the direction that you're going, and we're going to designate you under the act. Uh, again, it doesn't sound like uh, something that's spectacular, but we devoted millions of dollars and huge resources to getting that done. My hat is still off to all of our security folks, John Albertson, Floyd Hyde, Bob Flynn, all of the people that contributed to that. It was a, it's a huge accomplishment. I think our new building is also going to be another huge accomplishment. 
you may be able to see it out your window if you're in the building or if you're driving by. Uh, that's going to be a great thing for our franchise and for uh, Amy's heritage. But all of those, as good as they are, all of those things take a backseat to uh, being in the conference championship last game. Again, we could have won, by the way. Um, and I think everybody should take huge pride in it. What's the biggest change in the NFL from your start in the 1970s until now? Uh, I don't know where I read this, um, but sometime in 77, the league made a new deal with the three networks, a deal they negotiated at the same time. Because our business relies so much on live attendance, a lot of people don't think about the media and entertainment uh, outside of the stadium context. So that deal with the three networks was for $576 million. That was the year, by the way, I started with the team as an outside lawyer, uh, some 43 years ago now. And $576 million sounds like a lot of money. It is a lot of money. Uh, and it was a very big deal at the time. I think there were a lot of people surprised at the time. Uh, the, the league had just finished um, um, a sort of aborted strike, a uh, player strike, uh, the John Mackey uh, lawsuit and so forth. And so the numbers looked huge then, but nothing in comparison to what they are now. Those numbers now are 10 times that size. Um, thousand percent growth even over 43 years as being something small but among the other facets of that that have to be considered are that NFL games on television along with a few other sporting events are really the only thing growing on network television uh, people more and more people are watching there was the setback in the election year but you know the next two years it was up by in one case, double digits in terms of ratings. And, and that's not the only way people are consuming our entertainment offerings. They're watching it on digital devices. They're streaming things on mobile devices. Uh, they're listening on satellite radio, on terrestrial radio. Uh, and they are, of course, also going to the games in person. Uh, but another facet of watching our games in person is the fact that virtually every person walking in that stadium is bringing in a handheld digital device. And while they're watching our game, they're also looking at other things on their cell phones, iPads, whatever they're bringing in with. Uh, that's the reason, by the way, that we had to install a new eight and a half million dollar Wi-Fi network um, over the past. What it cost? Yes. Eight and a half million dollars. But that's because the fan experience is changing. People are watching more than one thing at a time. And that's true whether you're at home or in an NFL stadium or on the subway or an airplane or whatever you're doing, people are doing more than one thing at a time. It's a, a, a huge indicia of modern society. So I think the biggest change that has happened is how many different ways, because nobody was watching anything in their seat except the game in 1977 when I first began, that was all that was going on. Uh, handheld digital devices were something that was 20, 25 years away. So 
the media landscape is really what has changed the most. Yeah, are players getting paid more money? You bet. Uh, is the quality of play better? Yes. Uh, are we facing problems that relate to the health and safety of players? Sure. Uh, all of those things matter, and all of them represent changes. Uh, by the way, in 1977, when I started at the Oilers, there was about 20 people that were employees of the football team only. There was a half dozen coaches. Uh, there was a general manager, an assistant GM, handful of scouts, uh, and a few other people that worked in the ticket office, maybe a total of 25 or 30. Now, you know, we've got 200 people on our business side. So growth, however you want to measure it, whatever metrics you want to use, is something that has happened to the NFL. In, in uh, Huge is not a big enough word to describe it, but it includes huge changes in the media landscape that you would know, Mike, uh, oh so well. Uh, from your perspective uh, in the media business. And uh, it's, I think, the biggest single change that has happened is how our entertainment is being consumed and by how many people on how many different platforms. There used to just be the one, and now there are many. All right, let's wrap up with this. Five decades in the National Football League for Steve Underwood. You you go from pumping gas in Baytown. I got it right, Baytown, right? That's right. <laughs> pumping gas, trying to find money to go to the University of Texas, dreaming of owning a Corvette someday, uh, taking out loans or you know paying fifteen dollars a quarter, whatever, and you advance all the way to become president and CEO of an NFL team. It's a great country, right? Oh gosh. So. <laughs> So with life, by the and way. and maybe best of all, you get to go to Bowling Green to pick up your Corvette <laughs> uh, after you you save in your own modern day piggy bank, so to speak. But I mean, it's it's an American dream type story. It's an American success story. It's something that I know you and your family are proud of. The people who have worked with you are proud of it. What is your overriding memory of your time with Bud Adams, the Houston Oilers, the Tennessee Oilers, and on two occasions, the Tennessee Titans? Uh, you know, Mike, of all the questions you've asked today, that's the easiest. My fondest memory of all of that are all of the great people that I got to work with. I don't care what kind of leader you are. You have to have a great supporting cast. And the people that I've had the honor and privilege of working with over the last four years just some of the greatest folks in the world. And that includes, by the way, uh, all of our owners. Uh, I would not be where I was, where I am, if it were not for them. I wouldn't have these memories uh, and the privileges that I have enjoyed, but for our owners. So all of the people that I have worked with, having those experiences with them, there's nothing like going through a crisis with somebody that you know and trust. And there's a bunch of those people that I have gotten to work with over the years. Uh, for example, I've worked with Randy Schofield, who is the president of our parent company. I've known Randy within weeks of the time that I first came to work there. Uh, Janine Kaufman, I've worked with Janine for over 20 years. Russ Hudson, uh, again, over 20 years. Robbie Boren, uh, over 20 years. Well, you go through enough episodes of life and business with uh, people like that 
and you develop a, a respect level, a friendship level that it just, there's really nothing else like it, Mike, as far as I'm concerned. I would do anything for uh, the people that I have gotten to know and work with. Uh, I've just mentioned a handful. You know, Burke, uh, I hired Burke uh, almost five years ago. He, he's just been a, a huge friend and um, co-worker in so many of the things that we've done. So uh, you, I have to say this, Mike, since I, I have the floor at the moment. Uh, there isn't anyone that works for us that I have enjoyed working with any more than you. You're such a pro uh, and always dependable uh, with everything that we've asked you to do. And I know we throw a lot or have thrown a lot at you. Thank you for what you have meant to our organization. Uh, I'm, I'll always be glad and respectful of our friendship. Well, thank you. And uh, I'm so glad that five years ago you decided to come back for a couple of months. <laughs> and it lasted uh, 61 months, I think. So a Texan is a Texan all his or her life, no matter what. Uh, once you're a Texan, you're always a Texan. But just remember this, too. You're also a Nashvilleian. And so you, uh, you have both honors, and we are most glad and most glad that you took this time with us for what we'll call the exit interview on the OTP. <laughs> the privilege has been mine, Mike, and thank you for steering us through. Steve Underwood, part of this organization now and forever, with us on the OTP, sponsored by our great friends at Farm Bureau Health Plans. For Steve, I'm Mike Keith. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the OTP. Thank you.